Hello, and welcome to this podcast from the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. Hello, and welcome to this latest OIES podcast. This one's being brought to you by the GAS programme. My name's James Henderson. I'm a Distinguished Research Fellow at the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. And with me today, I have my colleagues, Mike Fullwood and Jack Sharples. I'm going to just time this and date it, the 7th of February, 9.30 in the morning UK time, because we're talking about a very current topic, and it's to do with US LNG export approvals, which have been put on pause by the US government. And Mike has written a comment about this, which has been published on the OIS website called What Next for US LNG Exports? So we're going to discuss that comment and the implications of the recent move. So Mike, Jack, welcome to the podcast again. Thank you. Good morning. So, Mike, let me start with you then. Can you just give us an overview of what's actually happened with the approval of US LNG projects? Okay, thanks, Jim. Yes. I mean, on the Friday, 26th January, they announced, or the Biden administration announced what they call, as you said, a pause. What the Department of Energy said in a statement that it would initiate a process to update the assessments used to inform whether additional LNG export authorization requests to non free trade agreement countries are in the public interests. That was basically the announcement, and then they went on to say they'll pause determinations on pending applications for the export of LNG to non-FTA countries. They did say that this, this temporary pause will not affect already authorised exports, by all the, those with, with non-FTA uh, approval. Okay, so let's get into a little bit of detail there. Just how, how, who are the non-FTA countries? Is that most of the exports? It's most of them, yes. Having looked this up, there's a surprising number, actually, of FTA agreements the US has got. I mean, obviously, it's Canada and Mexico, because they have their, their free trade area. And there's a, there a smattering of countries in the Caribbean, some of whom do import LNG or, or are going to. The only really big importer, I think, is Korea, which, which does in, has a non-FTA agreement. Japan doesn't. Obviously, the UK doesn't. The EU doesn't. China doesn't, obviously. So there are a number of countries where you can export to just with the automatic free trade agreement approval. But that does obviously restrict uh, the, the countries that the LNG can go to or can be sold to. Exactly which approval bodies is this affecting? This isn't affecting the development of projects necessarily, it's affecting their ability to sign contracts. Is that correct? Yes. I mean, the, the, there's two authorising bodies, if you like. The Department of Energy jurisdiction have the authorisation in respect to the trade. For countries with which the US has a free trade agreement, that's automatic. Uh, for non-FTA countries, they're called. DB actually is required to grant authority unless it finds that the proposed exports are not consistent with the public interest or prohibited by law and policy. The sort of default is they will get it, so there'd have to be a reason not to give it. The other authorising, other approval body is the FERC, as is fondly known, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and they have jurisdiction over the siting, construction, operation of energy export facilities, and they lead the environmental impact assessments consistent with the National Environmental Policy Act, with the Department of Energy as sort of a cooperating agency. So they're, they're, they're doing all the heavy lifting. You know, you have to file the luminous documents with FERC, all the engineering stuff, and FERC has to go through the, uh, the process and sort of tick, tick the boxes and give approval. Once you've got FERC approval, that's when FID, final investment decision, is normally taken. So basically, it's the DOE approval that we're talking about here of the contracts. Yes, so in terms of this public interest kind of mandate, what were the real reasons behind this decision to pause? I mean, what, what, were there any statements about what was driving this decision? 
No, there was the, I mean, I kind of already read out most of what the statement said. It was a fairly short statement. I mean, it's, it's, it's purely political. I mean, the Biden administration has become an increasing pressure from environmental groups and the left the Democratic Party to stop new export projects on environmental grounds. Obviously, it's, a, it's an election year, so in the words of the political pundits, he's, he's appealing to his base, basically, or, or to try and get, get them off his back. I mean, talk to one or two people who, who know how the, the administration DME works. It seems it wasn't, uh, not everybody in the administration was told this was happening, and some people were not too happy about this. It was, it was pushed through by the, by the uh, environmentalists in, in the administration, and as it's very, very hasty. I mean, it's actually not clear whether the DOE actually has authority to change the criteria on public interest. Normally, what would happen, you get an executive order, and the president can do that, order them to do that. This, this may well be coming, but the, the feeling was that possibly the legal side of the DOE, the general counsel, has given advice that it, it, they, they can probably do this under their existing uh, rules and regulations. They don't need an executive order, but that, that's... Uh, that, that, that's, that's a fairly minor point. I mean, obviously, if they, if they want to change the criteria, then the president can authorise them to do so. So the environment then, and I guess the, the role of gas as a, as a fossil fuel, has been the overtly political driver here. But I mean, are there concerns about energy security? And, and are there concerns about the impact on domestic prices of all these exports? Well, yes. I mean, there's been studies done in the past about the impact of exports uh, in terms of in terms of prices. There's there's a recent one, actually, I managed to look up the EIA, the Energy Information Administration, done just over a year ago, which found that there hadn't been any uh, material impact or there wasn't likely to be any material impact, depending on, obviously, the scenarios about the number of projects and exports you might have. So uh, there is obviously concern from the industrial user group and uh, some of the politicians as you push up domestic prices. That does depend on effectively how elastic the supply curve of U.S. production is, and obviously uh, what's it like to happen to the domestic demand for gas in the U.S. Let's get on to that then. I mean, you know, is one of the reasons behind this a, a concern, an underlying concern about the future of U.S. gas production? I mean, is there a worry that we're kind of hitting the peak of the of the shale gas boom, and that actually there might be a tightening of domestic supply and demand if there are too many exports? Yeah, it's, it's the tightening of supply and demand. I think that the that yes, at some point in time, you know, shale gas will probably stop growing. Uh, it's not showing much sign of that yet. I mean, it's sort of a plateauing out, but there's, there's still growth in quite a lot of areas. And one of the problems is that let's say the Marcellus and Utica up in the sort of the Appalachian area is it's not a lack of uh, resource or production. It's the ability to actually export the gas out of there, especially down to the Gulf Coast. So it's pipeline permitting, which is sort of restricting that. But there's, there's obviously there's a genuine concern that at some point in time, you know, if, if you keep increasing the demand on U.S. resources, that, that is going to push up prices. That That is the fundamental underlying concern, I think. If you even look back to, say, 2016, U.S. gas production has increased by one third. And in 2023, prices were at the lowest ever level since the 1970s, apart from the COVID 2020 year. Obviously, because there's no evidence it's happened in the past, doesn't mean you know it might not happen in the future. There is a genuine concern there, and I think the that's something the DOE will be looking at in terms of the criteria and probably doing more studies. Okay, but I mean, overtly, then it's the environment that is the driver in the short term, certainly for the for the Democrats. And you've mentioned the fact that we may or may not need an executive order from the president to make this happen. It may be that the DOE can just push this through, but 
In any case, how long do you think a pause could last? And what are the possible scenarios that you can see around this delay? Yeah, the election is November the 5th. It's certainly going to last until then. And given the new president and Biden would be technically a new president if he's re-elected, that will be the inauguration, which is sort of mid to late January. So it's difficult to see anything happening other than the pause continuing until after, I think, inauguration. Then it could go on for longer. After that, then I think kind of all bets are off. I think there's, and Jack will talk about the projects at risk, but there's there's a possibility that the pause becomes sort of permanent and there's no further on FDA approvals. I think we put that as a relatively low probability. The other area with some uncertainty, that there are projects which have non-FDA approval, but there's usually a seven-year deadline on these that you have to be up and running before seven years has elapsed. There's quite a few projects which need to renew uh, their non-FTA approval or submit a new application. Now, in the past, the DOV, uh, recently with the Port Arthur one, for example, they asked for a, a, a renewal just to roll it over, and that was granted pretty much sort of automatically. So they have done it for projects which have taken FID. One scenario is, of course, they'll allow it to be renewed, but they're not going to renew any new ones. Yeah, again, maybe a one-third chance of this. I think it's more likely that sometime in 2025, this pause will end and we'll, we'll just get back to the process of, of, of uh, granting non-FEA approvals. So a, a pause for a year or 18 months is more likely rather than an outright stopping of them, really regardless of who a Democrat or Republican is president. You mentioned, Jackson, and talk a bit more about flows and things. So, Jack, let me come to you now and, and let's have a bit of context behind this, this sort of what the impact is on the rest of the world. So how important does US LNG become to the world after the Russia-Ukraine war? I mean, let's start with Europe. What, what's, what's the impact of US LNG in Europe over the last sort of two, couple of years? It's been absolutely staggering, to put it bluntly. I think that the key phrase that you use then, how important has US LNG become? I'd, I'd like to take that and also link back to Mike's reference back to 2016, because that was the year in which significant US LNG exports outside Alaska began. And the US has basically ramped up from zero in 2015 to 115 BCM of LNG exports last year, which made it the world's largest LNG exporter. So they've, they've really gone from a standing start to an enormous amount in a very short period of time. And now, 2023 numbers, the US is up there with Australia, 108 BCM last year, and Qatar, 104 BCM last year. Between them, they each have about 20% shares in global LNG exports. Russia is fourth place, 42 BCM last year, and everyone else is, is further back behind. So the US has gone from a standing start to being one of the big three. In terms of the, the growth in total global LNG supply over that period, it's gone from 320 BCM in 2015 to 530 in 2023. So that's an increase of 210 BCM of which the US alone provided 55% of that increase in that time frame. So it's exactly as you put it, the US has become very, very important very, very quickly. Now, in terms of what that means for Europe, the share of Europe in, in US LNG exports rose to about 35-40% in the pre-crisis period, and then jumped in 2022 when a lot of US LNG was directed to the European market. So in 2022, the share of Europe and US LNG exports peaked at 69% and then fell back slightly to 66% last year. So Europe has now become the main market for US LNG. 
Conversely, obviously, the share of Asia in the US LNG exports fell from about 50% in 2020 and 2021 down to about 25% in 2022-23. And then finally, just with respect to, to Europe, to put some bold numbers on it, the volume of US LNG exported to Europe jumped from 33 BCM in 2021 to 73 BCM in 2022, and then hit a record of 78.5 BCM last year. So the numbers are huge on every count in terms of total US LNG exports and the volume that they're sending to Europe. Okay. I mean, and in terms of the kind of European dependency on the US, if I read correctly uh, when I read the note, I mean, the US LNG now accounts for, in some months, more than 50% of Europe's total LNG imports. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. Again, the numbers are astounding. So uh, at the at the very back end of last year, Europe received something like 5 million tonnes of, of LNG from the US. So the numbers are very, very large. Europe is also, I would say, as a side note, somewhat benefiting, let's say, from the fact that the Panama Canal is, is largely curtailed to US LNG shipping due to drought conditions there and limitations on the number of vessels that can pass through. So that does mean that for cargoes from the US with destination flexibility, Europe is even more attractive relative to Asia than it was. And that disruption at Panama is likely to last until well into the late part of the Panamanian rainy season, which would probably last from about May to December this year. So let's say for, for most of the rest of 2024, Europe is is you know really rather attractive compared to to Northeast Asia uh, as a market for the US LNG. And the journey for US LNG over to Asia has just gotten even longer with the closure of the uh, the Red Sea and the Suez Canal. Clearly, Europe is in a, in a slightly beneficial position, let's say, in terms of being a very attractive market for US LNG. Okay, so the dependency is likely to, to rise, which, which begs the question then, you know, what's going to be the impact of, of this pause and if, if, if future projects get delayed? So let's talk about which projects have been affected and what the volumes are. So, Jack, can you just kind of run us through the projects that are, are currently on pause and also the ones that may or may not be able to roll over their kind of approvals? So, again, for the for the broad context, the US has 93 million tonnes per year of operational LNG export capacity. And as Mike said, anything that's operational is not affected. No export license is already uh, in place for projects that are operating are going to be revoked. So that 93 million tonnes per annum is, is your benchmark. There are now another 65 million tonnes per year worth of projects that have been approved by the DOE that are unlikely to need extensions, uh, that have, have taken FID and are, are on the move. So several of those are, are set to, to hit the market next year. Uh, so those include Golden Pass, Pacaminas, Corpus Christi Phase 3, trains 1 to 7, and the Energia Costa Azul in Mexico. Now, that needs DOE approval because even though it's in Mexico, it's being fed by pipeline gas from the United States. On top of those, you would add the Port Arthur Phase 1 project that Mike mentioned earlier, where their license was extended back in April last year. So those projects take you to about 65 million tonnes per annum. So even if nothing else happens, those projects are banked and safe. US LNG export capacity is going to grow by more than two thirds over the next several years, regardless of this DOE issue. Now, on top of that, you've got the Rio Grande project, which has which took FID last year, uh, 17 and a half million tonnes per year. But they at the moment seem unlikely to hit the water um, by 2027 when their DOE uh, export license expires. So they're probably going to need an extension. 
There's a couple of other uh, projects, Cameron Phase 2, which is smaller, 6.75 million tonnes per annum, and the Mexico Pacific project, 9.4 million tonnes per year. Neither of those have yet taken FID, and they are also probably going to need extensions. So that is another 33, 34 million tonnes per annum. If those went ahead, then you'd be looking at a doubling of US LNG export capacity by the late 2020s. And then finally, you've got a, a whole raft of projects that have applied for export licenses and are moving towards FID, but haven't reached it yet. So there, you've got potentially up to 75 million tonnes per annum of projects on the board. Calcasho Pass Phase 2, Lake Charles, Corpus Christi Phase 3, Trains 8 and 9, Commonwealth Phase 2 at Port Arthur, Magnolia, and the Altamira Floating LNG Project. Now, it's quite possible that not all of those will, will make the final cut, but clearly there is an absolutely huge number of projects on the board, and they are all slated to, if, if they you know, sort of meet their, their progress targets, to come on, let's say, around 2030, perhaps into the early 2030s. So what this DOE issue really impacts is not the existing supply, not the supply that's you know, on, on the way and will arrive in the next couple of years, but really supply that will hit the water from 2028 onwards and into the early 2030s. And that's where it starts to impact our expectations of global LNG market supply demand balances. Okay, so let's let's go to that then. So I, I guess, as I understand it, we don't have all those future projects in our model. We've got some of them in our model and, and some of them affecting supply balances and others as, as more speculative. So as far as the OIS kind of forecasts are concerned, what is this going to do? What would this do to the future supply and demand balance? And what would it do to the utilization rates of of LNG facilities as we as we go out into the later part of this decade. Well, I'm going to give a shameless plug to Mike's paper here. I would really recommend that that people read it and I'm going to refer to a couple of the graphs in that paper. In figure 1 of that paper, he has a graph of the US Mexico LNG export capacity and in there you can see the capacity that's existing, the capacity that has non-FTA approval and is and is well on the way. And then on top of that, the ones that either require extensions or indeed approval. On those, uh, the last group that I just read, Mike included the Calcasho Pass Phase 2, Altamira and Corpus Christi uh, trains 8 and 9. So those altogether could take you up to just over 200 million tonnes per annum. Uh, so just over double where we are today. If you pause those, if you chop those off the top of the graph, then you're looking at something closer to um, a rise from today. 93 million tonnes per annum, up to around 150 million tonnes per annum. Now, in terms of the impact that that will have then out into the uh, the late 2020s, you really start to see the difference in what Mike and his Nexent World Gas model call LNG utilisation. So this is the global capacity to produce and export LNG. It's not the, not the nameplate, but it's rather more nuanced than that, taking into account sort of real world utilisation factors. There are two scenarios on that on that graph. The regular utilization rate, so it's what we think global LNG demand might be compared to LNG export capacity. Where we are today, uh, we're in the high 90s. So it's quite a tight global LNG market. So, you know, basically there's no spare capacity to produce LNG at a global level. Now, as these new projects come online in the context of the Qatari expansion as well, that utilization rate drops. Now, in the sort of the standard scenario that includes these U.S. projects, you get down to about 87% utilization rate by 2029, 2030. 
implying a much looser global LNG market. But if you take a lower US capacity figure based on pausing or cancelling these projects, then you keep that utilisation rate above 90% out to 2030. That implies a much tighter global market and with it, uh, obviously, much firmer prices. Okay, good. Well, that's an interesting contrast. Clearly, a potential impact later in the decade. Mike, you want to sort of say something about that? Okay, obviously, Jack gave a very good description of what the what the implications are if these projects or the ones at risk don't come on. I mean, this is based on obviously our Oxford projections of LNG demand and global gas demand. Uh, other commentators and especially industry may have higher uh, levels of LNG demand and gas demand, which means they're starting from a higher base in terms of the utilisation. So, in their view, the the, the, the cancellation or stopping of some of these projects. Could take the market back to a very tight level rather than a sort of a more balanced level. I think it's just worth sort of pointing that out. Is it's on our projections of demand, not uh, what others in the industry may say. Okay, a point well made. Let me move the conversation on a little bit though, and come back to you know the reasons behind this this pause, and and just ask you know as the pause is unwound, I guess given it's been driven by environmental issues overtly. As the pause is unwind, I guess the rules around the license to operate in terms of emissions in the value chain, methane emissions, et cetera, could be tightened. I mean, US LNG might benefit from that, perhaps become greener under new rules. Do you think that's a possibility? Yeah, I mean, I think the industry, to be fair, is already sort of going in that direction. I think some of the projects, newer ones, which are under construction, for example, are using uh, electric uh, compressors. Yes, some of them using renewable electricity to to sort of as part of the liquefaction process as opposed to burning burning gas in the process to generate the power to do it. So they're sort of moving in that direction. I mean, I think the issue mainly surrounds sort of methane emissions. I mean, it says the difference between displacing coal, let's say, in the Asian markets with, with domestically produced gas. I mean, the history of replacing coal with gas has, has led to significant reductions in CO2 emissions. And if you do that with domestic gas, then it's uh, it's kind of a win-win. The issue for LNG, especially US LNG, obviously is in the costs of or the emissions from transporting of LNG, vast distances across the world. What are the additional emissions, both methane and CO2, from doing that compared to, let's say, you know, displacing coal in, in Asian or, or even European markets? So I think from the perspective of, in terms of making US LNG cleaner or greener, I think the industry is going that way anyway, but this could give them a, a, an additional nudge, especially if there is sort of slight changes to the criteria in terms of the emissions, especially methane emissions they have to sort of deal with. In, in the final analysis, yes, it probably will push them into a slightly greener, greener world. Okay. I mean, let's leave the supply side and come to the demand side then. I mean, what's been the reaction in importing countries? You know, obviously, we've mentioned how dependent Europe's become on US LNG. How have European customers taken this? Well, I think there's a there's the European customers who uh, are not really taking it that 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 well. I mean, obviously, of this amount of risk, which is about 50 mTPA, half of that is contracted to European buyers. Obviously, with US LNG, you don't have to take it to the the market you you're in. The idea of contracting is you probably do take it to the market, especially Germany. So there's quite a few German companies who have contracted this LNG. So they they they've been sort of making a bit of noise about you know well we can we rely on the US in terms of our energy security. I think the European politicians, obviously, who are heavily invested in the transition and green agenda, 
the response has been, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll be okay because uh, we, we won't need the energy in the 2030s anyway. So uh, it's been a bit more, more sort of nuanced and obviously want to keep on reasonable terms with the US, the Biden administration, and I guess whoever, whoever comes after that. In terms of the Asian markets, I mean, the, the reaction has been almost un- uniformly bad. Uh, or, or been very disappointed in the in the pause threatening our security. Obviously, countries like Japan, for example, have made a lot of noise about you don't want us to buy Russian LNG, but then you're basically not going to build the projects to, to give us the LNG we need. So the Asian market has is, is certainly been a lot more negative than the, the European markets have been. Which raises a final question, I guess, as we get to the end of the podcast, around the opportunity for other suppliers including Russian LNG, ironically, who've, who've been sanctioned by the US. But now I guess there's a market opportunity there for them as they, they look to expand capacity, but also for others as well. So how do you see the opportunity for other suppliers as a result of this? Before we come to Russia, let's take the Qataris, for example. Obviously, they're in the, in the process of contracting for all their additional, at least four trains, probably six trains uh, or fairly large trains. I think they announced yesterday they, they're, they're renewing the agreement with Petronet in India which is due to expire in sort of 27, 28. That's been renewed. And obviously, they will see an opportunity to say, well, you can't rely on the US and come and buy the LNG from us. You know, we're, we're, we're definitely up and running, so we'll be there. There are other projects around the world, as we saw in Africa, in Tanzania, a bit behind the curb, Papua LNG, expansions there, all of which actually involve the same major companies who are, in some cases, building or buying the LNG from the US. I think it is Russia, which is probably sort of notwithstanding US sanctions and potential European sanctions, is best placed to fill any gap if such a gap uh, arose. And they have a number of projects, especially Novatech, probably Murmansk, Obsky. Obviously, Arctic, Arctic 2 is, is sort of beginning to produce, but it's obviously having difficulties because of the US sanctions. Um, so Russia is quite well placed to actually step into the breach. And obviously, from a political perspective, they can now play the card that uh, well the US, you know, the US want, wanted you to get rid of Russian Russian gas, but the US can't be relied on. So politically, it just plays right into the in, into the hands of the of Russia. It would be sort of ultimate irony, I think, that uh, the pausing of the US LNG and potential no, no more approvals coming out would just simply lead to Russian LNG uh, increasing Russian LNG into Europe. It would be sort of be certainly ironic if that was the ultimate end game here. Okay, well, another issue for U.S. election year uh, to add to the, uh, the the large pile that's already uh, accumulated, but uh, one we will follow with interest. And uh, so, thanks very much indeed, Mike, for your comments, and Jack for your comments as well. And I would recommend, as Jack has done, Mike's note, which is on the OIS website uh, and is called "What Next for U.S. LNG Exports." So please do go and, and download that from our website. But in the meantime, I hope you've enjoyed this uh, this conversation. And uh, another gas program podcast will be with you in a couple of weeks' time. But until then, please take care of yourselves and goodbye. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. You can find other podcasts, as well as our written research, on our website at www.oxfordenergy.org. If you would like more details about our energy transition, gas, oil, electricity or China research programmes, then please contact us at information at oxfordenergy.org.